All right, welcome to Grabs Podcast, where we share firsthand stories of real-world rescues. Our guest today is Tommy Hoplin, who is with the Seattle Fire Department, Ladder 3. Hey, Tommy, tell us a little bit about your department and your experience. I've been uh, on the department uh, 17 years. I'm uh, currently a lieutenant on Ladder 3, which is uh, a truck company in um, close to the downtown core, but not in the high-rise district itself. We respond to uh, uh, a lot of multiple dwellings and uh, single-family residences and one-story commercial occupancies primarily in our district. The fire department overall has a little over 1,000, almost 1,100 members. We have 32 engines, 10 ladder companies, a rescue company, a fireboat, seven or eight battalion chiefs. Everything's staffed at four. We send five engines, three ladders, and uh, a bunch of chiefs and all the other stuff to reported fires wow five engine three ladders for a residential structure yeah there's there's no differential between uh residential or commercial for us wow that's, um, a lot. that's good functional system though is four engines and two trucks fifth engine and third ladder are writ okay. so we divide that into two basic firefighting teams of two engines a ladder basic uh system is two engines team up to uh put a hose line in service and a ladder company handles ladder operations in that area. And then uh, a third and fourth engine company arrive and put a second hose line in service, usually above the fire. And uh, the second ladder company operates above the fire. Okay, so your truck companies, ladder companies, rescue company uh, performs your searches. Yeah, so we've, uh, we've been in the progress uh, process of changing our SOPs over the last year or two. And the second engine company assigned to a hose line will accomplish ladder company work in the absence of a truck if it's required. And once the hose line's in position and the fire's knocked down and they've moved to hydraulic ventilation, we'll start searching. So we, uh, we'll get uh, four companies searching on the first alarm uh, very quickly. Yep. Awesome. And then uh, when you guys search, do you guys typically split search, oriented search, rope search? What do you got? Our uh, default position is the oriented search uh, to the floor plan. So what, what's taught is the officer uh, will, would be at the, in the hallway and send firefighter into the individual rooms to search. The reality on the fire ground is everybody searches a room. Okay. And uh, we, as long as we're staying in close audible contact, it's not a problem. And given that we're uh, about nine firefighters in a residential floor of the house, it's impossible to not main con maintain contact. Yeah, true. What, uh, what you guys' departments uh, deal with VES? What do you guys, how do you guys assign it? Is it a tactic? Uh, VES is culturally is quite new. It's, it's only been around as something we've been talking about for less than 10 years. Uh, historically, Seattle, uh, before SCBAs, did VES, but never under that name. And uh, it's come back. It's quite new. I would say my truck company has got as much experience as anyone in it, in our organization. And we, we do it uh, a reasonable amount. The policy is a little gray on exactly how it'll happen. We, we've, in our experience on my truck, it's always been done by a two-person team, the driver and the tiller. And their goal is to get above and behind the fire, right? in yep. support of the uh, interior search. Good. Right on. Progress. I love it. All right, Tommy, uh, take us back to, well, it's earlier this year. Um, tell us about your box. box alarm. We had a, uh, we got dispatched to a report of working fire, which 
gives us the five engines and three trucks. And uh, it came in as an intersection of, uh, uh, and it was about halfway between our station, which is a double house, engine six and ladder three, and uh, another double house uh, with, with the battalion chief, 25's ladder 10. And uh, the initial call notes when we got in the apparatus, when we were still suiting up, was uh, a reported victim in the basement. And there were multiple calls. It was 11.30 at night. It was dark out. Uh, we, uh, we were listed as the second new ladder company, but it was, it's an address where it's nose to nose. It, it's how fast you get out of the barn. Um, so the other station, Engine 25, arrived uh, a few blocks ahead of us. Uh, Lieutenant Barron, she's an amazing fire officer, uh, at the end of a very long and prestigious career. She, uh, she reported a well-involved structure and was laying a two and a half. They had to stop short of the fire building due to lines down in the street. And the battalion chief was right behind her. He pulled up, assumed command and reported a fully involved building. We, we pulled up uh, moments after that, uh, due to power lines and trees, we weren't able to, uh, use the, bring the uh, aerial into service. So we deployed to the house as our standard plan, which is uh, for me is two firefighters, myself and a firefighter, proceed to the front door for forcible entry and search. And the driver and tiller proceed around the building, uh, one to the left, one to the right, size it up from the exterior, the back doors, check the basement and conduct either horizontal ventilation or VES as appropriate. I briefly uh, saw the chief in the front yard. He told us to be careful. It was a dramatic amount of fire showing. It was a split level house and uh, fire was coming from multiple picture windows on the left side. Uh, both floors were involved. The uh, right side of the house, however, where the bedrooms were located on both floors in the garage had no involvement at this time. The, ac the exterior access to directly into the lower level wasn't possible. There was fire in that room and it had security screen over the door that had failed, the fire venting out of it. So my truck took a look at the Charlie side for vent enter search and took bars off the window. Uh, our neighborhood, almost all the houses have bars on the windows. Myself and a uh, forcible entry firefighter proceeded to the front. We forced the front door, it has a security screen. When I forced the door, that's when I could hear the victim yelling. It was clear to me he was straight down the, the split stairs and to the right. Um, so we started down the stairs, masked up, we uh, mask up with our gloves on. It gives us a real jump. The engine had started water from the outside, knocked the, uh, the bulk of the fire on the alpha side down, but due to the uh, stream angle, the transitional attack was ineffective at extinguishing the fire. And they followed us in with the two and a half. I got to the bottom of the stairs. I was the first member at the, in the lower level and I could hear the victim yelling, but due to this close area, it was echoing and I couldn't, couldn't hear uh, really where they were. But it was only a few feet. I crawled. Um, I pushed firefighter into a into a side room to search, and then I was on top of the victim. He was laying in the hall. His uh, he was prone, face down. His feet were towards me. It took me a while to figure out. It was a little humbling uh, to figure out that I was on top of a person with my gloves, feeling his thigh, and he was still yelling and talking. And uh, at this point, we had about 12 inches of visibility. When I got right up to him, I could I could see him. And given the limited space, I wanted to flip him over there and orient him for the carry up the stairs because I didn't want to have to coordinate that at the foot of the stairs with all the other firefighters. So I grabbed his arms and uh, just pulled and flipped him over. I will say it was, I hurt him pretty badly in doing that. I think it, it 
he really started screaming and um I've, I've not hurt a patient really badly in a removal before. And it that definitely was something that sort of gave me pause. Due to his, uh, his size, he was over 200 pounds. He was uh, in his 50s to 60s, right around there, and, and uh, had, had real muscle tone, had, had bulk, and then a little, like a beer belly, a little gut on that. It was pretty heavy. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get my arms around him to carry him out. So my normal plan would be to reach from behind around his torso and grab his wrists. But with the thermal imaging camera and the battle lantern and my fifth radio, which I carry on my chest and all the other stuff, I, I didn't think I had the reach to get him. He had no pants on, but he had a t-shirt. A friend, a good friend of mine told me that uh, an option for removal with a shirt that doesn't have buttons, you know, that's closed in the front is you could put your arm through the neck hole of the shirt all the way down so you're like your fist comes out where his belt would be and then reach back and grab the collar again and that'll sort of form a hasty harness around their shoulders so i decided to give that a shot it worked really well i was able to stand up and the patient came off the ground so it's just his feet were dragging i just started backwards I heard on the radio, the uh, lieutenant on the engine company called out that we had the victim and we're bringing him up the stairs. A couple of firefighters, engine company members jumped on the, the victim's legs to help push him up the stairs. We only had, I don't know, six or eight steps to go. And I oriented myself to go up the steps. That was very challenging. The plan was to go up two steps and then lift him so that his feet, his butt would never come, like uh, get set on my toes. So I'd keep my feet free. Challenges with that were the hose line on the stairwell that we were stepping on and slipping on. Depth of the tread, my uh, balls on my feet were off the steps the whole time. I just, the, the leading edge of the steps were the, where my arches of my feet were. So I had a really hard time generating power with my legs. I was on my heels and I, I couldn't squat very well. So I couldn't lift him. I wasn't strong enough. It, it was uh, shocking to me. So I had to go down a step. So I was only one step above him. And then each step that I lifted him, his butt was on my feet. And so the problem was I had to extricate my feet every step as I went up and the firefighters pushing his legs were doing a really good job and they were driving him into my legs really hard. And that was probably the most exhausting part was getting my feet out from under the victim each step. In the dark, there was no coordination. The firefighter who was leading the pushing effort below me, she called cadence. Uh, she did a great job. Uh, Katie did an amazing job and just called one, two, three, push over and over. And uh, although we weren't coordinated, I knew where they were in the process. And I called one, two, three, lift. And again, same thing. We weren't coordinated, but they knew where I was in the process. We just kept going. And it worked out and I got all the way to the top, but I thought I was going to fail. I didn't think I was going to make it. And I was starting to come up with uh, alternate options for swapping another member into my place. When I got to the top, I fell over and uh, additional members of my company grabbed me and the victim and pulled us out onto the, the steps down the front steps. The, the engine companies assigned medical were right there and they picked us up and carried us as a two person unit over to the uh, gurney. And uh, the guy was still yelling the whole time. So he's, uh, he's got as good a chance as anyone to making it, I think. And, uh, and then at that point we went back into standard uh, fire ground operations and, uh, return to conduct the search of the bedrooms and you know the overhaul and all the all the other things that we do in the the fire scene sure <clears throat> that's a great story tommy uh so listen to that story 
like <clears throat> you talked about in the very beginning is that uh, you're about 20 blocks out, the other company's 20 blocks out. It's all about getting out the door. Do you guys have a, do you guys have a personal standard? Do you guys try to get out the door? Do you guys have a clock in the bay or anything? We do not have a clock in the bay. We are fortunate. The, the city has remodeled all the firehouses in the city or built new ones in the last uh, 15 years. We're fortunate to be in one of the smallest double houses in the city. And it allows us to get out the door so much faster than other companies just due to travel distance. That uh, our department standard is 80 seconds on fire responses to be have the wheels rolling if you have to turn out. And we're one of the few stations that's physically capable of it just due to the floor plan. And um, the it, it's way beyond probably what I have any control over or what most of the people who will ever, ever hear this have control over. But the design, the architectural design of the fire station is the number one factor in turnout time. That how, how many linear feet and how many turns and how wide the doors are between where firefighters are and where the apparatus are is everything. Um, yeah, it's just a second two story or one story house? Yeah, we're two story, but it's just a small two story. Yep. And other stations are three, four stories, just very large footprints, very large apparatus base, so they can you know, have specialty apparatus or whatever. And there's all sorts of things, right? It's, um, you know, it's funny, the fire service, like if you go to my fire marshal's office, they can quickly run a uh, egress software program and they'll tell you how wide all the doors have to be, how wide the stairwells have to be, how far is an acceptable distance for people to travel in a set amount of time based on estimated fire growth. And that, that'll that'll tell them whether they need to create areas of refuge or sprinkler systems or all the stuff, right? That in public buildings, they can get, have, they have, we have the ability to have an insane level of egress planning and uh, we require it. We calculate it for every public building we construct in the city. And the, the national codes don't require any of that for fire service, for fire station construction. And if we have a standard that, you need to be able to put your turnouts on in say 45 seconds. And we have to be able to get to the apparatus in 35 seconds to meet NFPA standards. Yeah. And you know, it's just, <laughs> it's interesting that the fire service doesn't, doesn't require fire stations to be built to facilitate turnout time. Yeah, absolutely. So I it's mean, it's a dramatic <clears throat> impact. We've less than half our stations in this, just the way it is. It's not a criticism of our members but less than half our stations can meet turnout times. And it's, it's a feature of architecture. Yep, absolutely. I think we have the same kind of problem. And we went from small stations to large stations, back to small stations. And now we're back to large stations, which we all like the small stations. And uh, I love that you brought up that point. Like we should probably start looking at more of a standard on what is really acceptable to get to the rig due to the layout of the, um, to our firehouses. So what, what I loved about um, <clears throat> this rescue when you were talking was about when you found them, well, one, I love that you're humble enough to talk about, like you didn't really realize that you're on top of them, which you know what? Hey, that happens. Um, can you imagine if you were walking? I mean, there's so many people that wouldn't, wouldn't have found them because they were walking. But, uh, but what you said was that, to reduce communication and confusion, you oriented the victim for 
rescue. So you turn them around before anybody else was even there to help out. Uh, tell me about that, like the thought process. Well, I, I knew that like on one hand, I wanted to keep his head as low as possible, right? There was, even after the fire, there's a distinct about 10 inches of white paint at the low level. Like that's why he's alive is his face was down on the ground and you know, in this case, he was face down. Like his, his nose was as low as possible. And he's alive and still screaming because he's down on the ground. And this is a post flashover fire with heavy smoke conditions. And it's been a while. And he's still alive. There's survivable space in there. And, uh, the, and this, this fire, the, I, I did, probably didn't do it justice when I first talked about it. We had fire 40 or 50 feet in the air and it caused an adjoining structure to catch fire. We, we, had a well-involved apartment building next door and the magnitude of fire was dramatic and it was zero visibility and he was still talking. He was face down on the ground at the lowest level and I wanted to keep his head down there. I didn't want to lift his head up into the smoke, but I also knew I wasn't going to be able to carry him up the stairs feet first. And so in that, I thought the total time of exposure to the victim was going to be reduced if we did it fastest. And so I was willing to accept increasing the amount of cyanide that he was gonna take in the hallway to decrease the amount of cyanide he was gonna take in the stairwell. And uh, so being able to complete a task without coordinating with other members, I think is usually just fastest. That anytime I have to talk to someone else, come up with a plan, communicate the plan, you know, get everybody on the same page, that's time. And the whole time he's going to be breathing cyanide. So I chose in this case to flip him over and orient him for the removal in the hallway without telling anybody I'd found the victim that I didn't see any benefit in his removal time to sharing that information at that point. And if I drug him to the base of the stairs, there was going to be more room to turn him around, but there were going to be a lot of firefighters. There were going to be three companies there and, everybody was going to pull in a different direction and everybody was going to have a good idea and everybody was going to want to help. And, uh, I saw that as being uh, uh, detrimental to the, the victim. So I, in this case, I chose to flip him over, but there was a cost that I lifted him off the ground and carried him through the smoke and his head, you know, was three, four feet off the ground. And if I had drug him by his feet, I'd have left his face on the carpet the entire time to the base of the stairs. And I don't know what the right answer is. That's the choice I made, but, it, uh, I was very aware that what I did there was going to impact the amount of cyanide he was going to get. You know, I love, uh, I love talking to you about this because um, there's very few firefighters that I talk to that are um, as oriented to what the conditions are, where the people are in the, in the, in the, ha the house fire or the apartment fire where we're at. Um, what the needs are and really making a plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D decision and actually working through it instead of just blindly pulling. Um, and I think that makes a lot of, I would, I don't know cause it's all emotion right now, but uh, hopefully from the UL study, we'll hear something from it. But I think that a lot of those decisions are going to actually increase the, the survival of our victims. So that's pretty awesome that you that you uh, have the um, experience to be able to 
probably think within a half a second of what you're going to do and you just, you just do it. So that's pretty awesome. Uh, I'll say I've, I've never brought a, a human uh, like at an incident out of a lower level, right? It was just a split level, not a full basement, but it definitely scrambled like all of my plans are for uh, bringing a victim down the stairs out a window or, you know, just out through the front door. Like I didn't, I did not have a plan for a civilian out of a basement that I, I was modifying my firefighter rescue plans. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and then you had, it, go ahead. Yeah. Anyway, it was, it was very noticeable when I was doing it. I was like, man, I'm kind of embarrassed that I haven't thought through civilian victim in the basement more where I can't use the basement door, you know, out the, the Charlie side in our case, we're a city of Hills. So we usually have an on-grade basement ex exit and that just wasn't an option because it was on fire. Yeah, totally. Um, and then you, you know, you were able to use, um, the guy's t-shirts, which is an awesome, um, uh, takeaway from anybody listening, I'm sure. Uh, and then to me, you are, you had a plan B already. Your plan B, as you were telling me, as you were getting tired was to tap out and have somebody else, um, finish the rescue. Uh, and I think that takes a lot of, um, a lot of courage, I'd say. I mean, someone to suppress their ego, wanting to make sure that they get the grab for the greater good of, of this man. Uh, so that's pretty awesome. So let's talk about, let's say that, uh, you, that, uh, this guy didn't have a t-shirt on and you're down there. Uh, are you going to do, is he going to do something different? I mean, obviously you are, cause you, you don't have something to grab a hold of for the t-shirt. So. Yeah. So, so I would, I, I have a couple of things like obviously, uh, what I would have done in this situation, whether or not it, it was the right thing to do is I would have put webbing, um, around his torso and, uh, I don't, and, attempted to do we i carry a couple of different loops of lengths of loops and i'd have used my short one gone just around his torso under his arms um and tried to just create uh basically a, an s hitch anyway it's what we i call it um to get a grab point under his arms to lift and that was necessary i think i said it, i don't remember but uh at least as an officer i have so much stuff on the front of my mask I have a thermal imaging camera, my extra radio and the battle lantern and just, you know, a knife and extra sawzall blades for extrications. I just got a bunch of shit that makes it really difficult for me to reach around someone in my gear. And the other thing that I think I should have considered was that's not true of basically every other firefighter there that I'm like the worst case scenario for trying to drag someone out as an officer. And, another option would have just been like have someone else do the removal because they don't have all that stuff hanging on them. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, that's probably faster than webbing and more effective than webbing. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, true. True. I love that. Uh, all right, Tommy, we're about to wrap up. You got, you got any, uh, little nuggets for anybody out there? Oh man. I, uh, my big takeaways and you know, we're focused on the rescue, but for us with four person staffing, I, this really, really drove home and confirmed for me that, the the right thing to do is put multiple engine companies on a hose line that when you're actively flowing and moving and trying to attack the you know make the seat of the fire 
and you encounter a victim or a forcible entry challenge or a firefighter has a mask failure or whatever the situation is, you need the bodies of the additional engine company to keep the hose line moving while addressing those, those other options. In this case, uh, uh, for various reasons, we, we had the exposure building going and stuff. We didn't have the staffing uh, that would have been ideal in the, in the initial moments. And there were brief gaps where the, where the line got, uh, wasn't in a position to address the fire. And uh, it got a little exciting for a second. And uh, how important it is to have, you know, we, we put a minimum of five members on every hose line and to have two engine companies on that line is critical um, to support whatever's going on, but especially a rescue. And then in the case of the ladder company operations, the uh, uh, how critical, again, four person staffing, right? It doesn't necessarily apply to everyone, but how critical the, uh, the inside outside uh, split on the truck is that, my, uh, my outside team was conducting vent and search and they were coming through the window directly adjacent to the rescue. And that provided, there were window bars on all the windows. So that gave us the, uh, our egress. If something had gone wrong, if we'd lost the stairwell, it gave us plan C to bring the victim out a uh, basement window directly. It gave us the additional bodies and, you know, fire conditions, you know, in this case I was able to make the stairs, but, you know, by the time we were finishing the rescue, we had some flames in the overhead and a couple things differently. It wouldn't have been possible to go down the stairs. And uh, that victim's only option at that point would have been vent and her search uh, from the, and picking one up front, you're hoping you're right. But doing both right away, everybody's got an option, right? And we don't, we don't have to commit to one plan. We can run multiple plans simultaneously. And I think the interior search plus Venator search is just such a powerful, powerful operation. And uh, like it's new to us, it's new to Seattle, and uh, but it works. We're seeing really positive results. Yeah, uh, I think you bring up an awesome point. Like uh, definitely committing people to search early and I'm not talking about just two. <clears throat> if you can do with four on a smaller house or something and, and more is better, but like, making different entrance points is going to give us a, a better success and reduce our time to locate them. And then also our ability to have multiple ways out for plan A, plan B, plan C, and multiple people to be able to do drags and radio communication and stuff. So that's awesome. All right, Tommy, thank you for coming on to the show today and sharing your story. <clears throat> if thank you're you, on, Justin. Yeah. <clears throat> no, thank you, man. If you're on scene of a structure fire with a rescue or assist with a dead or alive civilian, help us capture our wins and specific details that improve our rescue and search across this nation. And fill out one survey per victim on www.firefighterrescuesurvey.com. <clears throat> you can also join the Facebook group, Firefighter Rescue Survey, where hundreds of rescues are being recorded monthly. If you'd like to share your story on Grab's podcast, uh, you can get a hold of Grant Schwalbe, on the book of faces he also runs the search uh presidential primary search making the grab of the book of the faces uh i'm justin mcwilliams you can give me a call or text 503-729-2734 or get a hold of me holding me on search culture or just my normal page thanks <laughs>